And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Happy holidays to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, garden columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page, Twitter.com slash Farmer Fred Daily Garden Tips. Lots of snark, lots of retweets. Um, by the way, retweets do not reflect any sort of uh, personal endorsement, as people are fond of saying on Twitter. And what else? Oh, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page, where there's always a garden dialogue going on. And uh, I, I, I love the video I posted of the professional exterminator who was brought out to a house to get a yellow jacket nest. And the yellow jacket nest turned out to be in a shed. And this yellow jacket nest was the size of a refrigerator. So it had been there for many years, which leads us all to the question, didn't these people ever need to get into this shed to get this equipment out of the shed? Or did they just go in, get stung, and get out? But anyway, the uh, professional exterminator went in with a GoPro camera mounted on the outside of his sting-proof suit, and it's just like a bad horror movie of all these insects coming at the camera and coming at him while he's trying to destroy this uh, yellow jacket nest that apparently has been there for quite a few number of years. Okay, while, while you're mentioning that... Can I introduce you? Sure. It's the Green Hornet. No, it's, uh, <laughs> it's Steve Zion from Living Resources Company, today's guest as we celebrate California Healthy Soils Week. Yes. All right, now go ahead. Um, for those people who have yellow jacket problems, in particular when they're in the ground or in a stump, Many of your local vector control agencies, the mosquito vector folks, will come out for free. Your tax and, dollars at work. And, and, and take care of those critters for you. So you don't have to be pouring gasoline down there or doing, <laughs> you know, God only yeah. knows what. Or sending yourself to a hospital because you, you got stung 800 times. Your vector district is not just for mosquitoes anymore. Right. They they will take uh, out the yellow jacket nest. They will be disappointed if it turns out to be a paper wasp nest because they love battling yellow jacket nests, but still they will destroy the paper wasp nest if it's in an area that needs uh, human accessibility. You're right. And and I don't think they don't deal with bees though, I don't think. I don't know. I, I don't No, they so. won't they won't rip apart the outside of your house to get the bees that have taken up residence inside no. your walls. No. That's, sometimes that's you else. can you can find beekeepers. Yeah. Sometimes that will that'll, that'll handle bees for you. The other uh, bug that likes to live inside this time of the year that's uh, starting to show up more and more in the Sacramento area is the brown marmorated stink bug. Yes. And it likes to travel indoors for the winter time. And if you go in, if you find their little colony in a wall and then you attempt to destroy them, your house will stink. Yeah. Hence the you, name. You, you, well, I mean, you you don't want to squish them. If you don't squish them, it's there's there's yeah. generally not an order. The the trick is in in fall. Typically, you know, if you if you have have a problem, uh, they will you will you know come home from work or or the grocery store, and notice on one of your walls, you know, the outside a thousand yeah. or more of these brown marmorated stink bugs, and they look like little tiny shields. And the the most important thing you can do to prevent them from is is prevention, IPM, integrated pest management. You want to prevent the pests from being a problem. When they're on the outside of your wall, they're not a problem. It's when they get inside. So you need to 
if you're in neighborhoods where this is a problem, um, seal your house off really, really tight. There's a thing called caulk that you can get at most hardware stores uh, and, and a lot of the big box stores. But and you don't want to block the ventilation if you have soffits in, right. in your attic. You need that ventilation. But then you put in a fine screen yeah. that will exclude them. Right. And make sure the, the existing screens are in good working order. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, then another thing you can do, one of the best controls for them, uh, there's this new fangled device. It's called a shop vac. <laughs> and you put a little soapy water in, in, the, in, the, in the container, and you just vacuum them up. Uh, then what? They'll die. You just leave them there for, a short, for, for an hour, and they'll all die. And then you... Why would they die in an hour? They will suffer. They, it will not not allow them to to breathe, basically, because you put soapy water. Oh, in oh inside your shop vac. In the I side, see. Oh, inside okay, the shop right. vac. So you yes. have a little bit of water, and and and, and, a, and little a little bit of soap. of soap. And but yeah, how much water do you need? Because obviously you need room to hold you, all you, the. You, you need enough so that they will be. Yeah. So like yeah. about four inches or so. It or? depends on how many bugs you got. Yeah. Okay. And how big your shop vac. You know. All right. Um, but you want you want to drown. Basically, you're you're collecting them so that you can drown them in soapy water. If you don't have a shop vac, um, a bucket and get, a brush. Get like a square bucket. Yeah. And either a brush or just a stiff piece of paper or cardboard, and scrape them into the bucket of soapy water. That's a two person job. It can be. Yeah. One person yeah. to hold the bucket against the wall, and the other yeah. person to start yeah. brushing yeah. or scraping. And you want to avoid try and avoid squishing them because they do. Stink. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, the it's it, they're not dangerous. They no. just stink. Yeah, yeah. So like a skunk. Yeah, they and they really don't do any damage to your house or anything, other than the potential for smell. Well, you'll smell it. Yeah, if if they, if they die, if they get squished. I don't know how we got on that scenic bypass, but it's worth telling. Yeah. Yes. I think you brought it up. Uh, well, I, just I usually ran with it. I usually do that. The uh, uh, I'll get us back on track right now. Let's delve into the email people have been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. And if you want to call in questions, Brooks is here today. You can call Brooks. He will talk to you. And then if he's nice, he'll let you talk to me. 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. And again, the email address, Fred at FarmerFred.com. So Barbara writes in in Grass Valley and says, hi, Fred. I just received a huge poinsettia as a gift. How can I keep it beautiful through the Christmas season? Thanks. Um, Spray it with lacquer. <laughs> no, no, speckles. Shiny speckles. <laughs> no, you want to keep it away from vents. You want to keep it away from any, any fireplaces. Draft, any draft. Any source of heat. Any, any draft, any heat. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, in a room that has enough light that you could read by. Yeah. So not that high level of light, but, you know, a comfortable level of light. Bright light, but not direct sunlight. Right. And again, out of drafts. And most of the poinsettias sold now have a nice foil wrap around yeah. them. Now, if you want to water the plant, take it to the sink, take the foil wrap off, water the plant, and you should water them probably once or twice a week. And don't, and don't water them every day. No, don't water them every day. And keep uh, uh, take that foil off, water it, and then if you want to replace the foil, you can do that. If you want a prettier container than the foil and plastic, keep it in the plastic, but 
slip it into a larger container, larger, larger more attractive yeah. container. Yeah, and then and, you, go ahead. And if you you know if you're going to put the foil back on, get a saucer, and poke holes in the bottom of the the foil, so that you know because unless you leave it in the sink to drain for like an hour, mm-hmm. there's the potential for more water to drain, especially when you move it a little bit. It should. And, and you don't want that water to, to accumulate in the bottom of that foil because then the roots are going to start rotting on the bottom. By, and on that same note, if when you go to water it uh, beneath the faucet and water immediately runs out, I mean immediately runs out, uh, that would indicate that that plant had dried out, the soil has pulled away from the sides, and basically you're just watering the side of the pot, right? not the soil. So what do you do then? Panic. And then you realize that you have to basically drown the root ball, if you will, and submerse it. So you get a, a, a bucket or, a, you know, a dish pan or something that holds water so that you can put the whole, you know, and then just basically, you know, submerse it in water. You're going to have to hold it down for a while because they're, because it's full, the soil's full of air and it's going to want to float. So you're going to have to hold it down. Put a brick um, on it. You can, you can, yeah, you can put something yeah. on it to weight it down, um, should and you fill in the gaps? Should you add more soil or no. break up the existing soil? No. Really? Because it usually will, will when it moistens up, it'll expand. Oh, aren't it's, you the contrarian? Okay. Yeah. I like that. Because everything we know is wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it, 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 the root ball was moist. It filled the container. When it dries up, it shrinks. When it moistens back up, just like a sponge, yeah. it's gonna, it, it should fill in. Wow, thank you. Yeah. New information. Yeah. Who thought from an old guy you'd get new information? <laughs> right? I like that. That's why I'm, I, I, or I was a Wisconsin certified soil tester. Uh, uh, Bet you didn't know that about me. The Prince of Pedagogy, <laughs> or whatever it is. Pedology. Pedology. The Prince of Pedology. Yes. All right. I, I, that makes sense that if you kept that container with the dried out soil inside a larger bucket of water and left it there, for 12 hours or whatever. That shouldn't the, take that long. Okay, but the soil will re-expand and then yes. fill up to the sides again. Yeah. Okay. But that and, only and, and, and if you know if it doesn't, then you can take a little bit of potting soil. And Oh, know. thank you. Okay, now. But all right. Now it, we go it, to the it, old but school. It, you re- it, it should not be necessary. All right. Well, that's good to know. Uh, at this point, we will take a break. When we come back, we'll delve into more of your email. Or if you dare call with a garden question, we'll take it. 576-1578 here in the 916. He dared you. Please call. 866-331-8255. Email again, fred at farmerfred.com. Or leave a message at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. I guess I should check that. You're listening to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, let's delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. Steve Zion is here from Living Resources Company. Oh, here's a question that has Z written all over it. Uh, Rich writes in and says, My wife emailed you a few weeks ago about transplanting a lemon tree in our backyard. Thank you for the answer you provided. Now that we're getting closer to transplanting it, a few more questions have come to mind. First, about the tree. It's approximately six feet by six feet and has been in the ground for about three years. The trunk is at ground level. The trunk at ground level is about two inches in diameter. It's a dwarf variety of Meyer lemon. 
The location we are thinking of transplanting it to is mostly clay, so the drainage is not great. I've dug down a couple of feet to loosen and amend the soil, but I don't think I've improved the drainage much. To get around the drainage issue, is it possible to transplant the tree to a very large pot that would be sitting on top of the clay soil? If so, how do we proceed? What kind of soil should we use? How big should the pot be in relation to the size of the root ball? How often would a fruit tree in a pot need to be watered? Thanks in advance. <laughs> be my guest. Where do you want to begin with that one? Get a new tree. I, mean, I like if, that. I mean, if yeah. he's got an established tree in the ground. Three years. For three years. And he's moving it to, a, and it's a citrus plant, and he's moving it to a clay soil. Citrus don't like bad drainage. You dig a hole, you amend the soil in that hole, you're basically creating what's called a bathtub, mm -hmm. and it will hold the water. And, and water will go to that area. Yes. And and so you're, Osmosis. You, you, you will be you know, dr basically drowning the tree. Um, There's taking, no such word as drowning. Hmm? There's no such word as drowning. Okay. okay well, in Wisconsin, there is. Is is it yeah, is yeah. it called drowning in Wisconsin? Yeah, drowning. Yes, drowning. Yes. Okay. And <laughs> I'm the guy on Twitter that corrects everybody's English. Well, my English is this is Wisconsin. We call. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what's a drinking fountain? It's a bubbler. Really? Yes. It's called a bubbler. And that's and that's really not Wisconsin. That's Milwaukee. Wow. Only, the only place in the world where a drinking fountain has its own word mm -hmm. is Milwaukee, and it's called a bubbler. But throughout the Midwest, nobody drinks soda. They all drink pop. Pop. Yeah. 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 That's a, so continue your story, please. What was I talking about? Drowning. Drowning. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you, you, you know when, you ha when you've got a clay soil and you mend the soil around that area, if you want to amend the soil and improve the soil, you have to go and basically dig a hole as wide and as, as deep as the mature tree will be as far as the root ball. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're, you're just creating a, a bathtub. And to you know, try and take an establish, a tree that's been in the ground for three years and then move it into a container, uh, my guess is that the root, you, could, you would be removing so many of the re roots uh, that it probably would not survive. You, you know, you can... Dwarf trees, you can probably get in, get by with a, you know, a half oak barrel um, for a while anyway. Um, but that's starting with a tree that was, you know, in like a five-gallon can, not in the ground. It's going to have an extensive root system. If yeah. that tree is six feet by six feet, you got to figure the roots go out six feet. Or if not right. more. If not more. Yeah, so, yeah, typically the roots go out one and a half times beyond that. Yeah. So the roots are probably going out nine feet. So if you if you can find a container, nine by nine by nine by nine by nine by nine, you can probably put it in. Well, not in. nine feet tall. Mm. No, no, you don't want a container nine feet tall. You might have it eighteen inches tall. Or you'd want it big deeper than eighteen inches, or it'll cook. I, I if, if, if possible. All right. Now, my but you're not going to find a container nine feet no, by nine feet either. I, that's why I think the, <laughs> the the logical answer would be to build a raised bed in that area. If that's yeah. the only spot where you have enough sun yeah. to put a Meyer lemon tree, well, let's build a raised bed there yeah. and make that raised bed at least three feet by three feet by eighteen, sixteen inches tall. Yeah. So it's a couple of two by eights. Yeah. On top of each other. Yeah. And then put a you know and use a lot of earthworm castings. 
so that you can help start opening up that clay soil down below to to get the roots so that the roots can get down there. Remember, Steve's entire retirement fund is in worm casting <laughs> stock. No, it's not. All right. The uh, a good just, quality potting soil could help too. Yeah, thank you. But it's but it's not going to get the soil biology down there to break up the clay. All right. Uh, well, now th- that's the other key, though, is you've got this slow-draining clay soil beneath this raised bed that you build, so you would want to incorporate any sort of new soil into the existing soil first, wouldn't you? A, a little bit. A yeah. little bit, yeah. No, yeah. maybe an inch yeah. worth yeah. of new soil and and And, mix and, it and in. whatever mix you've got, yeah. I don't know why I feel I'd be politically incorrect to use the word rototill around you, but you could do that to mix yeah. that soil in yeah. with uh, that. But, like, one pass. Don't turn it to dust. Well, come on. A digging fork would I, be... I went yeah. to all the trouble to start up this machine, and it's vibrating me, and it feels like fun. I want to use it a lot. <laughs> digging digging fork would, 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 would work better, but it's a, a lot more work. Yes, it is. is involved. But anyway, you only but, but, need to mix but, in about an inch or so. But, yeah, um, to get to, 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 so that it's not a, 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 such a dramatic transition. And explain why that's important. Water, roots, and everything where, where it's a, there's a, a, a major change in soil texture uh it makes it real hard for roots water air everything to move down mm-hmm. um and when you've got a, a, a basically a more porous soil over a more clay soil in order for water to get down into that clay soil that porous soil needs to be totally saturated because in a clay soil water does not move by gravity it moves by Osmosis. Osmosis. That big, that big word that, that Fred likes. Yes. Osmosis. And it gets the water gets basically sucked into a clay soil. Gravity does not pull it into this into the clay soil. So you want that smooth transition from the new soil to the existing soil right. in order yeah. to keep the drainage flowing. Right. Yeah, but I, you know, if you've got a, a, a citrus tree that's got a six foot spread on it, I. You know, unless you get one of those tree companies where they have this big mm-hmm. bucket that will dig a huge root ball, I don't think you're going to have much success transplanting. So I can hear people yelling through the window. And the fact we're five stories up, you, people shouldn't be hanging on the edge of the window like that. They're yelling through the window about, well, why not just dig the tree up, cut off the roots to maybe a foot or so, and cut back the top of the tree so that it's easier to move? The, 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 <laughs> yeah, I got to think about it, and it, so I got to yeah, say stall. all these weird noises <laughs> while I'm thinking. All right, but the, think the, you're basically going to be cutting off the the feeding um, portions of the plant, and you're going to end up with large roots with with no feeder roots, and it's it it's just going to you're much better off just buying a new plant. The good news is Meyer lemon trees are cheap. Yeah. Because they're growing on their same root system. Yeah. The, the 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 big disadvantage is that if you're growing organically, you cannot buy organic citrus at the moment because of the uh, Asian citrus psyllid spreading this nasty disease called HLB. And so they're mm. they're treating all of the citrus sold in California to stop the, fred, the, the, the spread of this insect, which is spreading this nest. The insect itself is not a problem, but it's the disease that it spreads. Absolutely death to all citrus plants. Well, this must be a conundrum for the organic growers who want some organic citrus. Yep. What are they doing? I don't know. As far, you know, my guess is they're, they're probably growing, you know, they're probably taking cuttings mm-hmm. 
and raising their own seedlings. To be, you know. Now, that's easy for the Meyer lemon since it's on its own rootstock, but uh, so much citrus is on some sort of dwarfing rootstock yeah. that that might be div that involves a little bit more work. Yeah, and the, 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 only, the only other thing that I can think of that they could potentially, I mean, they could, I don't even know if they could get rootstock. I mean, they might be able. Oh to, yeah, you could buy rootstock, and then you. But, but what, does that have to be treated? That's my question. Oh, oh, oh. It may not because yeah. because the psyllid is an insect and it's a foliar feeder. It's not a root feeder, and so that they might be able to get organic rootstock. Well, you could have your own organic rootstock fairly easily, since most citrus send up suckers. Yeah. And you could use that. Yeah. For your propagation, as far as planting it, growing that tree, but this is a long process. So, twenty years from now, you could plant. <laughs> Well, I mean, and you can, I mean, you can also, you know, buy the, the treated trees and there, I, I think it takes, I think we were talking about on the other show, five to seven years before you can market it as, as organic. That you can market it. So you're basically taking it from a corporate agriculture approach, right. not from a homeowner right. approach that wants organic produce. Right. So how long would it take? For the the homeowner to get true organic that's, lemons that's, from their lemon that's, tree, that's the real question. Pesticide residues break down in what what are called half lives, and so it's it it's it takes a long time. Uh, the only research that I am familiar with, the, the the kind of pesticide they're using, is similar or is imidacloprid, which is a systemic. They water it into the soil and it gets absorbed by the tree. And there's one piece of research that I saw when they were fighting, it was on eucalyptus trees, and I believe they were fighting the eucalyptus uh, lerp psyllid, mm -hmm. and they treated it, and 18 months later, uh, in the plant tissues, uh, they still had toxic levels of this pesticide in it. So we really don't know how long. Well, the, the problem is easily solved. Uh, enough money changes hands, and uh, imidacloprid gets registered as organically safe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Well, I mean, and then, well, yeah, you better hope and, so. And, and that, well, then there's the <laughs> issue that they're trying to get um, hydroponic. Uh, well, that's another argument for after the break. Yeah, okay. is that's an it's a very interesting issue now in or commercial organic growers. Yep. Growing organically in soil, yeah, that's organic. But is growing organically in hydroponics organic? And that's the question that is being tackled with on whether many, whether many it levels. Should, whether it should be, I mean, the issue is whether it should be can be certified as organic when there's no soil involved. Okay, we will tackle that when we come back to get growing on Talk Six Fifty KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Steve Zion, Sacramento's organic advocate, president of Living Resources Company, based in Citrus Heights. Garden Grappler coming your way in about a half hour or so. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. Also at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Well, there's a controversial ruling in the world of organic crops. Is soil an essential element of organic farming? Or can a crop grown in a soil-free container also be considered organic? Well, according to a vote by the National Organic Standards Board back on November 1st, which is an advisory board to the USDA, they voted 8-7 to seven to reject a proposal that would have disallowed hydroponic and aquaponic farms from being certified organic. 
Now, this has uh, roiled up in the world of organic farmers who have organized rallies around the country that talk about real farmers do it in the dirt. And um, it, it is uh, organics is a very big growing industry. And it's growing by huge amounts every single year. Also growing is the hydroponic market, which yeah. is projected to hit something like $490 million by 2023. There are already 100 hydroponic operations certified organic in the United States, according to uh, the Sierra Club newsletter. And one of the issues that a lot of, uh, shall we call them dirt farmers, are saying is that hydroponic technologies are being formed and grown by investors, hedge funds, that the systems that allow crops to grow in artificially lit vertical indoor stacks or in water-filled containers with farmed fish or other aquatic animals whose waste supplies uh, the plants with nutrients as profitable ventures giving their potential for high yields. So it's like the, the big corporate interest versus the small farmer. Yes, I see. I don't have an issue with that. Okay, let's get back then to the issue of hydroponics versus soil. Is hydroponics an organically accepted way to grow crops? I think they should be able to, and this is my, my personal opinion, organics since the beginning was all about the soil. And it's still... And for, for those who, the soil farmers, it's all about the soil. Improving, I mean, all the regulations say you have to improve soil quality. And to and that's the whole basis of organic farming is improving and creating uh, this organic, nutrient-rich, living soil with all the soil biology. And you do not have that soil biology, at least in the, in the science that we have now in hydroponics. And my personal opinion is without that soil biology, you're not getting the maximum yield, if you will, uh, as far as nutrition and nutrients and pest resistance and all that good stuff. Without that soil biology, we need to have that soil biology. Yet I do think that the organic hydroponic growers should have some sort of term that says that they are growing without synthetic fertilizers and pesticides and that it can say have, have the word organic in it but it should be a separate classification uh, so that the consumer knows that this was grown hydroponically because there there is in my opinion um, and I have you know 40 years of, of experience and knowledge and research on the subject there, I, I firmly believe that there is a di difference in the quality of the product that the consumers will be getting. Um, I think it's absolutely wonderful that the hydroponic growers are growing things organically, um, but it should say organic hydroponics or, or, or something to that extent so that it is in its own separate grouping, its own separate classification as far as consumers and labeling is concerned. What are some of the soil components missing in hydroponics that you would find in soil? It's all the, all the soil biology. And the soil biology is what gives the plants uh, nutrients, growth hormones, plant and soil conditioners, fights off pests, um, helps the plants communicate with each other and nurture each other. So you're talking mycorrhizal functions. Well, there, there's more than it's more than just mycorrhizal fungi, but there's all you know. There's there's billions and billions of different kinds of of critters that live out there, and they all serve 
functions uh, in relation to plant health and nutrition. Define critters. Uh, bacteria, fungi, uh, protozoa, nematodes, earthworms. And, and they all have a function in creating a, a healthy ecosystem for that plant to grow. Okay. And, and there, you know, I, I'm convinced and, and, uh, and that, you know, I, that there, there will be more nutrition and more anti, as far as, you know, you eat organic food from a, from soil will make your body healthier than if you eat organically grown hydroponic. From water and fish poop. Yeah. Okay. Because, because you are lacking the, the benefit of the soil biology. And I also then think that growing, you know, or eating food that's grown synthetically will be another step down because there's, there's very little soil biology in a synthetically farmed cropping system. All right. Now, do you want to tackle some uh, questions from listeners? Sure. All right. Okay. That's an interesting uh, point of it's, view. It's, it's an interesting debate. Yeah. And, you know, and I really firmly believe that even though it's, it's big, big business going into this thing instead of the small farmer, um, I think the hydroponic growers should get a, their own organic classification because they should be able to sell it as organic, but it's not the same as, it, as if it was grown in soil. All right. To the phones we go. Let's go over to Danville. Talk with Ray here on Get Growing. Good morning, Ray. Hey, Farmer Fred. Uh, question for you. Uh, speaking of soil, I I would like to plant blackberries, but it but I read something where you can't put them too close to tomatoes. Yeah, because you could so, cut yourself when you're picking tomatoes. <laughs> well. Okay, so it sounds like something to do with viruses or funguses that one can spread to the other or vice versa. How, what is a safe distance? I would plant them separately, just like I say, because blackberries can be thorny. There are thornless blackberries, but a lot of people prefer the taste of thorny blackberries. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with, with, with a, you know, a disease or pest issue, there, which there may be. Um, but I do know, being a pedologist, uh, that the... <laughs> The, the pH, the acidity or alkalinity of the soil, the, the, the berries like a more acid soil. And so for, for that reason, you're going to want the pH of your soil for those two different plants. Well, blackberries aren't that specific as far as pH. Oh, it's blackberries, not yeah, blueberries? Yeah, it's blackberries, oh, okay. not blueberries. Okay, never so, mind. So, yeah, and, <laughs> and most tomatoes uh, preferred on the slightly acidic side. So from a yeah. pH standpoint, I think blackberries and tomatoes could peacefully coexist. Yeah. But I, I would worry about pests vectoring over from... The blackberry to the tomatoes, and I don't know if you know the little raspberry horntails or, or certain diseases would spread that may not. But I mean, just from a safety standpoint for yourself, I would want some ease of use as far as being able to prune those blackberries as well as picking tomatoes from uh, getting yourself all cut up. You know, my my limited okay. experience, blackberries get rust a whole lot easier than tomatoes. Yeah, and so there's the you know potential that the rust could. You know, go to the tomato. Could go to the tomato, yeah. possibly. So yeah, you know, it's... And, and, I mean, one of the problems is there's not a lot of research on companion planting, which is basically what we're talking about. Sort so of the, the advantages or disadvantages yeah. of putting two different plants together. 
there are you know what yeah. you might want to do there are a couple of books that 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 are you know uh that talk about that and and you might take a look at those you know go probably find them in the library or i'm sure the internet like what roses loves tomatoes or what, no what? Well, carrots love tomatoes carrots love tomatoes and roses love garlic or know, something, something like that, that. and plant by the moon what yeah one other question. Uh, what would you recommend variety for a uh, blackberry with thorns? What? What? Because unfortunately, I have a deer problem, and I think that the, the thorns maybe will keep some of the deer away. What would be a good variety you'd recommend with thorns? Well, for that, let's turn to uh, the opinions of uh, the taste panels that uh, Dave Wilson Nursery employs since they sell blackberry plants and find out which are the highest rated blackberries as far as flavor goes and do it from that way. I don't have a problem with that. Um, of those that they sell. Of those that they sell. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay. So let's see what they call the highest rated tasting blackberries from a catalog. Um, Black Butte blackberry, large extra firm berries with good flavor on a vigorous trailing vine. That's a euphemism. That's a catalog euphemism, meaning it's going to go all over the place. The black, yeah, the black satin is thornless. Chester is thornless. Um, the thorniest variety is called a Kiowa, K-I-O-W-A, if you're looking for the thorniest possible. But it has three-inch-long fruit that's highly flavored. Three-inch? Wow. Yeah, lo- wow. Low winter chill makes it productive in both coastals and desert climates. The Kiowa, you just have to put up with the thorns. Um, excellent for fresh, uh, use, uh, the Marion blackberry, uh, Navajo has small berries, but says possibly the best flavor of all blackberries, the Navajo, but that's thornless. Uh, the Olali berry, uh, which has blackberry flavor. It's a medium sized berry that are sweeter than tart. Um, so those would be the, uh, the thorny ones that you may want to consider. Check out Dave Wilson. Yeah, yeah DaveWilson.com and go to their uh, uh, BlackBerry page. You can find out more uh, flowery pros there. Excellent. Thanks, guys. All right. Good luck, Ray. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Now, really, in my uh, knowledge of BlackBerry aficionados, everybody has their own personal favorite. Yeah. So, you know, it's whatever you like. I like the juicy ones that are ripe. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll delve into the email and more of your phone questions that you're calling in with at 576-1578 or toll-free 866-331-8255. It's Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Tackling your garden questions at 576-1578 or toll-free 866-331-8255. Also email. You're sending to fred at farmerfred.com. Steve Zion is here from Living Resources Company. Talking organics and soil because we're celebrating, because we we will celebrate anything. Um, Healthy Soils Week here in California. Back to the phones we go. Let's talk with Steve and Carmichael here on Get Growing. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Fred. How you doing? We're doing fine. What's up? Excellent. I'm, I think, looking for a needle in the haystack. Um, last month, my wife and I went up to the El Dorado Master Gardeners. Uh, they had a, a home orchard seminar. Yeah, yeah. It was like an all-day uh, seminar. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, good. One of the speakers, uh, Dr. Ted DeJong from uh, UCD, mm-hmm. he was talking about fruit and nut trees. And we've got a couple of pistachio trees in our yard, uh, a Peters and a Kerman. So we've got the, you know, 
male and female, but the uh, the finished nuts are only half full. They're only half mature, and he said that um, if we could find another variety uh, called Randy, that that would overlap the um, the bloom time of, of the Peter's male, so we'd have a better uh, possibility of getting full uh, nut meat. And I'm just I've been looking all over the place trying to find one of these Randy pistachios, and it, it seems like it's next to nothing, or like I said initially, the needle in the haystack. Uh, would you have any possible uh, ideas where I could look for that? Thank you, Dr. Ted, wherever you are for that one. I mean, that, that's, yeah. part, that's part of the pro- one of the problems sometimes when universities and, and those types of people who do great research and find all of these cool varieties. The question is, you know, is it commercially available? Um, and that was part of the problem with the um, UC Davis drought-tolerant plants for a while. They came mm-hmm. up with this, this great list of plants. But they're, they're hard, they were hard to produce, and a lot of nurseries, you know, wholesale growers were not making them. And so here are these great plants, and the landscapers wanted to, to put them in, and they, the landscape designers would design them in, but they weren't, you know, the, the installers could not find the plants. So um, but but one, one of the things time. I would do, is, oh, I mean, trees are not, or, or nurseries might still be able to add to their, like their bare root order and their fruit tree order and their nut tree order. And I would contact, you know, all of the, the retail nurseries in your area and, and see if they have access, and maybe they would be able to order one or a couple of them or, or several okay. of them for you. All right, sounds good. Now so the, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll dig around and see what I can find. Well, I'm wondering if uh, by planting another male tree, another Peter's tree, that uh, might solve the problem or not if you can't find the randy. That's true. That, because, that, so I never thought of that. that 97%. Of the pistachios grown commercially in California are Kerman and Peters, ninety-seven percent. Yeah. So, in a in a home situation, um, well, do you have bees? I I think the answer might be become a beekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, keep a hive of bees to uh, get them uh, uh, more completely pollinated. Because uh, he's right. One of the key problems, if you've got a half-filled nut, it's incomplete pollination. Right. Correct. So that's uh, that. Yeah, good luck finding a Randy. Is right, mm. or, or, or take you know, t- you know, take your uh, bees and have them go to school and so they pollinate properly. Yeah, yeah. We've got a lot of uh, salvias and, and different plants like that in the yard that attract a lot of bees. And... Well, that's helpful. Yeah, have yeah. A, having good bug hotels is always yep. a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. I, I, I I'm the information. I'm at the home orchard site right now. It's called fruitsandnuts.uc.edu. Oh, perfect for California. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there is, I'm looking at a PDF they have of pistachio cultivars, and they don't list a source for the Randy. They do talk about it, but they also talk about uh, uh, the, mostly about the Kerman and the Peters. Mm-hmm. So I am not sure where you are going to find a Randy. Hmm. That's a, okay, but, well, maybe that's, like I said, a needle in the haystack, and maybe just getting another Peters would work. Yeah, well, I, 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 I'd call, I'd call your, you know, your, your good retail nurseries, and mm-hmm. and say, you know, ask them if they have access to them. I would think sure. that sometime in January or February, yeah. Phil Purcell will be on this program, and Phil okay. works at Dave, Phil was one of the speakers at that conference you went to, and he works uh-huh. at Dave Wilson Nursery, and they sell the Kerman and the Peters, but he usually has a line on other varieties or can tell you uh, who oh, okay. who carries them. Chuck Ingalls. You might try talking to Chuck Ingalls. I mean, he's a fruit 
guy more than a nut guy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But he, yeah, you know, he, he, he may be able to find out. Yeah, Chuck was one of the speakers at that conference you were at as well. And, and yeah, he, so was Phil, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, it, okay. yeah, I mean, you could contact Phil at, at Dave Wilson or wait for him to come on the show and ask him then. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, Steve. Thanks for the All call. Right, we'll talk to you later. Yeah, good All luck right. on that hunt for the right. uh, Randy Pistachio. That's a that's an interesting conundrum, but yeah, I think just even having another Peters around and doing more good bug hotels to bring in the bees, or or you know having a hive, having a hive, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, I've 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 had clients like my you know in the urban environment where you know they they get all excited. I come back you know come by for a monthly visit. Look what we got, and they've got a beehive. Yeah, you want to watch Brooks sweat a little bit here. <laughs> Which is, we're going to take a phone call. And he's saying, no, you only have a minute and a half left. Ah. Michael and Folsom, welcome to Get Growing. Uh, Michael, come up for air. Yeah, you're off speakerphone now. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, um, Mount Fuji Cherry, probably 20 years old or so, front yard, former lawn, now low water and mulch. And I'm getting some dieback in the upper it's a beautiful tree, produces reliably. It looks like a, sn- a pink tinge snowball every spring, and but it's uh, it's kind of taken an odd shape because I've had to prune out so much dead wood. Um, radical haircut? No radical haircut. What? You you could do. Is is it? Does it produce cherries? Um, or is it just strictly it, ornamental? It, it, no, it's, it's ornamental. It's a Mount Fuji um, ornamental okay. cherry. Okay, all right, uh, because uh, you don't really want to prune in wintertime just because the wounds heal so much slower, and of cherries are I more... I always have. Okay, uh, <laughs> cherries are very susceptible to all sorts of problems because of winter pruning issues, so the best time to prune it would be in late summer. Uh, August is an excellent month for pruning cherries and apricots. And as far as bringing it down to size, if you wanted to do some heavy-duty pruning, and that would be only taking off maybe a third of the total length of any branch at any one time. So okay. it, it might take a, a couple of years, two or three years, to get it to the shape you want. Now, if it's dead wood, you can certainly remove dead wood anytime, anytime as long as you're not cutting into live wood this yeah. time of year. Otherwise, I would wait until August to do most of your pruning. And I, and I think the question is, cherries. you know, why is it dying back? You said you, yeah. you know, you you've now got drought tolerance. We're out of plants time. underneath. We'll have to go you, talk after yes. the break. Hold on here, would you, uh, Michael? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Brooks really appreciates that. It's Get Growing on KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time, and you people who are on hold with questions, stay there because you might be able to answer today's Garden Grappler question. Why don't you turn on your microphone and we can hear you? No, we, keep it off. I don't want to hear you. <laughs> we were in the middle of talking to someone, but we'll, let's ask the question and we'll get back to... Michael, yes. Yeah. All right. Um, the question in today's Garden Grappler is pretty simple as far as a question goes because, as usual, there is no interrogative pronoun, so it's not really a question. Name a component of soil. Now, we talked about a lot of things about soil on the KFBK Garden Show, and I know we gave more than five answers. And you got to think about it for a second, but once you figure out what, what, what all is in soil, you can come up with one answer. 
name a component of soil. All five callers get a prize. It's from Steve Zion. It's uh, Know Your Soil Texture. Cool. Very good handout. And uh, caller five gets a bonus prize because, as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. Again, the question is, name a component of soil. No soil, no life. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And, but we were talking with Michael in Folsom and about pruning an old cherry tree. And that takes time. If you, it, I don't know. Did, did you want to bring it down in size or just reshape it? Well, I, I was where I was leading. Yeah, is he said that you know he, he changed what was growing underneath it to drought tolerant plants, and that the top of the tree was dying back. Oh. And so my I love question, the top of the tree. yeah, my question is, um, how are you irrigating the tree? The tree gets occasional uh, warm weather deep watering, and by which I mean it has a sprinkler running for 20, 25 minutes uh, soil saturation. Uh, it is a small lot, and it receives, it's got roots under the area that receives generous drip, and it's got roots underneath the street. And the, there have been some roots that have been surface roots because it did a lot of surface roots when it had lawn. Um, some of the surface roots were damaged in the transition. Yeah. But um, it's just not looking as handsome as it once did. And also for the garden grappler, one of the uh, ingredients for soil is mycorrhizal bacteria. Mycorrhizal fungi. But yes. I'm sorry, fungi. Yes, thank you. Sorry. Mycorrhiza. Michael, remind me to put you back on hold so Brooks can write down your name and address, and we'll send you the prize, which is from Steve, called Know Your Soil Texture. And, and you know, I think, you know, my question, I, I mean, you said, you said that you, you, you saturate the soil, but to what Periodically. De- but to what depth? And, and my guess is, you know, you said you ran the sprinkler for 25 minutes. And I don't think that that's, I mean, typically when you're, when you're trying to get the water down deep, your typical irrigation system is, is going to run off before it moves into the soil. Are we dealing with old-style sprinklers here or new uh, low-flow sprinklers? No, what actually I'm dealing with is a hose-end sprinkler. And I run okay. it in the, within the canopy and I run it for 20, 25 minutes. For yeah, deep yeah. Zone. But you're still putting and out two gallons a minute. You're putting you're that. putting a fair, a fair amount of water, in, in in a short period of time. And my guess is it's not going down to the depth of the root system. And what yeah. I would want to know in all of this is how was the cherry tree watered beforehand before you put in the new landscape lawn sprinklers only okay and that's probably could be one of the reasons why it's suffering now it's just because of the radical change in the way it's being watered yeah what 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 underneath the lawn if you were only watering the lawn all the roots are in the top six to eight inches probably Mm -hmm. and then you took the lawn out and then you took the lawn out and yeah Mm -hmm. So it, it, the root system is is suffering from the change in irrigation. Yeah. Okay. And, and so what what should I do in terms of fertilizer? What should I do in terms of uh, knocking back the canopy some in order to um, 
make it match the root system. Well, let's take it back another step, and what do we need to do in order to improve the irrigation that sort of mimics what it got before and see if that well, helps out? Well, you want to... Well, it, tr- it needs to be weaned, if anything, because yeah. the old irrigation system ain't coming back. Right, right. But... From lawn to, uh, you know, a handful of shrubs and... Lots of rocks. But still, a, a soaker hose or an inline drip emitter system located especially in that spiral near the outer canopy of the tree might uh, help revive it. Right. Yeah, so so what, okay. what you want to do is, you know, water, water at this point, water the, the, the root zone of that tree, which starts, you know, several feet from the trunk and goes well beyond the drip zone. Obviously, okay. you can't irrigate under paved surfaces, but where you can... And irrigate more frequently, more frequently now than you will later, because it only has a shallow root system. But you know, every time you don't mean now, now. Well, no, no. And when we need to irrigate, okay. it's raining in Folsom now, yeah. now. <laughs> yes. Um, and then as as you know, as the uh, season goes on, be watering you know deeper and deeper and less frequently, unless it's too late. And it, yeah, and it may be, yeah, there may be so much damage yeah. that it may be too late. Well, no, no, it, it still looks pretty happy overall. It's okay. just it's getting died back on tip branches and, and uh, here and there. Yeah. But um, totally off topic, what do you call a little boy whose pockets are full of nothing but pennies, dimes, and quarters? What do you call a little boy whose pockets are full of nothing but pennies, dimes, and quarters? Is your hand on the mute button there, Brooks, <laughs> just in case? I'm thinking something in reference to common sense. Um, I'm not no thinking. Need. Okay, what, what is the answer? Nicholas. Nicholas. Pennies, right. dimes, and quarters. Nicholas. Wow. Thanks, Bob. Boy, Thanks, the, Steve. That was a, that was a <laughs> don't call me Bob. Uh, that, that was a long way to go for that. I, I don't know. Do we take his uh, Garden Grappler prize away really? from that one? He just called me Bob. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm not calling you Bob. I'm sorry, Fred. You know, you look like a friend of mine whose name is Bob. I'm sorry. Oh. I, when, I, when I think, when I look at your picture, I think of my friend Bob. Oh, thank you. It, it, it's flattering. It, it really is flattering. I love Bob. He's a terrific guy. All right. As, as opposed to, say, Bob Tanner. <laughs> All right, which is usually where the confusion gets in. Michael, I'm going to put you back. Oh, he went away. We'll never find out. He hung up. Well, then he's not going to get his yeah. prize. He's got to Michael, you have to back. call back and talk to Brooks, and we'll uh, send you that prize because you answered today's Garden Grappler, the first of five. Uh, name a component of soil. The thing I didn't do is give out the phone numbers. So if you want to call in with the Garden Grappler answer, name a component of soil. The numbers to call in, 576 1578 in the 916-576-1578, or toll-free 866-331-8255. 866-331-8255. Name a component of soil. Uh, Michael said fungal mycorrhizae. Yep. So that that's a good answer. Yep. But you think about what's in soil. When you pick up a handful of soil, think about all that's in there. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. It's sort of like the opening scenes of Blue Velvet, if you saw that movie. I know. Your, your head is spinning on that one. Well, it starts off. I remember National Velvet. No, no. Blue, <laughs> Blue Velvet with Dennis Hopper and uh, somebody else. Uh, it was a David Lynch movie, so it was kind of wacky. So it starts off showing this beautiful suburban home with a beautiful lawn. And the camera keeps zooming into the lawn, into the lawn, deeper and deeper into the lawn, until you see this war going on in the lawn between all these insects. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
So it's, it's sort of like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to see if I can find that scene on the it, it's the opening interweb scene. thing. Yeah, it's the opening scene, so it won't take you long. But if if you like, you know, Dennis Hopper movies, weird Dennis Hopper movies, aren't almost all of them? Yeah, most of them are, weird. or at least his character. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he ever played anybody normal. All right, Roy and Citrus Heights, go ahead. Uh, oh, you have a question, and then possibly an answer. Hello, hello, Roy. What's up? Okay, the question is, um, I, I'm growing broccoli. Uh, I have for several years this year. I planted more than I have in the past because I'm trying to move towards actually feeding myself uh, uh, from my backyard now that I'm retired. And uh, I've never had problems with broccoli before, but this year I've got this little green worm growing on my broccoli plants. I shouldn't call it a worm. I think it's actually more correctly some form of caterpillar. Yep. It's a Lepidoptera character. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, Otherwise uh, known as a caterpillar. Yeah. I went out and um, I cleaned them all off the leaves because it, it was just decimating the leaves on there, just skeletonizing them. You found them on the underside of the leaf? No, actually I found them on the upper side. Mm. I, yeah, you can I, find I looked them on the underside too to make sure there weren't any down on the bottom. They yeah. were all crawling on the upper side. The green yeah. matches the leaf very, very well. Yep. You have to really look for them. And you sound like you're already on the on the uh, the trail of this guy. Oh yeah, no, we we very common. Jo- jo- yeah, you've joined the club. We've all got them on our broccoli, and it's okay, all. Well, go ahead. It, there's this little moth that flies around, a little little moth, white white moth w- with a dark spot on its yep. wing, yep. and okay. it, it just looks cute. But that's the guy gal that's laying the eggs of the cabbage worm or the cabbage looper. Yeah. Okay. Worm, and now the question is, okay, how do you control it? Well, uh, a butterfly net, a butterfly net. Yes. (laughs) There's a couple of strategies, uh, because it is difficult to obviously run around your yard 24 hours a day with With a net. Yeah. Um, I was joking. Well, hand picking though is not joke and that can work. Uh, ducks and chickens, if your plants are mature enough. Yeah. And if they're a good habit to get into is especially if you're growing it to eat at home is to cover broccoli, not the car- caterpillar. Yeah, is to <laughs> when you plant the broccoli to begin with, yes. is immediately throw a row cover over yep. the broccoli. A row cover is a permeable white fabric. It allows air and water to get through, and by lightly covering it, and th- these are lightweight fabrics, you apply it loosely to allow room for the plant to grow, and it'll just push the uh, row cover up oh. with it. And you're protecting, you're basically excluding, excluding, that's a good word, excluding the moth from laying the eggs on those plants. Yeah. Okay, so is this moth going to just keep coming back? I mean, not the same one, obviously, but more of them going to keep coming back and laying more eggs on my on my leaves, and then mm-hmm. the yep, yep. So are going to keep emerging and going to town. Huh? Yeah. Unless you plant a good bug hotel. Well, there's a good bug hotel having lots of birds. Um, the, the, you know, you can put a, a, a row cover over it, but there's also what I consider my favorite pesticide and I hate recommending pesticides, but this is an organically acceptable material. It is a naturally occurring disease of caterpillars. Okay. The only thing it affects is caterpillars. So it's right. safe for everything else in the known universe. And it's called BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. And you can go to any nursery store, uh, or any nursery, 
Most of your hardware stores, even sometimes the grocery store, they will have it. And typically you ask for BT. They will usually know what you're talking about. And uh, there's a lot of brand names for there's it. There's lots of different brand yeah. names and lots of, you know, Caterpillar Killer. Dipel. Dipel, yeah. yeah. And uh, you it, didn't say Captain. I keep waiting for you to say Captain Jack. That's because they don't have a BT. Oh, they Captain don't. That's Spinoza. That's a different, different material. Okay. Don't use that. You want Spinoza the, doesn't work on caterpillars. It works, but don't use it because it kills lots of other things. The night when you're using it's organically pest acceptable. Ma- when you're using pest uh, integrated pest management, you want to use the product most environmentally friendly. That's going to do the least damage. That's going to only target the pest you want. That would be exclusionary tactics and, at the low end of that totem well, pole. Well, yes, yeah. but. You know, if if he's not going to going to you know use the floating roll cover as as what, what are the, we're using you know, both. Um, the 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 this if you wanted to spray the spray for caterpillars that you would want to use is the BT because it only kills the caterpillars. Are you now uh, changing your tune and coming out against spinosad? No. Okay. But you, you spinosad kills a lot of different things. Right. And you, one of the things that one of the principles of integrated pest management is you you choose a product that is most selective. It's only going to kill the targeted pest, and that's what's wonderful about BT. It doesn't kill other guys. I mean, spinosad actually kills some of the beneficial insects that mm-hmm. are out there. So, if you use BT, do you have to spray the pest directly? Does no, it have any that's, residual activity? That, that's what's wonderful. A couple things wonderful, more wonderful about the BT is you don't have to hit the pest. It is a stomach poison. It's available as a spray or a dust. If you use the dust, you need to moisten the the plant with with irrigation or rain. I think beforehand. most of it's water soluble. The product. And um, okay. now the dust is meant to be applied as a dust. Okay. And um, you put it on the plant. They eat it. Within an hour, it makes their stomachs upset. They stop feeding, and it'll take a, typically about three to five days to actually die. But damage stops within an hour. Now, this material is a biological material. It degrades in about two weeks, so it's gone. So it's not killing you know, the beneficial butterflies that we... Well, I shouldn't say beneficial, but the butterflies that we like. Steve... Brooks has a gun pointed to the back of the <laughs> and and um, it it's so you will have you know if you get new ones you're going to have to reapply it if you get yeah. new moths coming in and there. clean up I mean if you have a really infected plant get rid of the plant yeah not re- I would not I don't think you have to do that I would just because some of my broccoli got so eaten it's not worth trying to save well that's that that could be all right. Now, to, to wrap this stuff up, Roy, so we can make Brooks happy and take that break that he so desperately wants in order to get paid. Roy, do, do you have an answer for today's Garden Grappler? Name a component of soil. Minerals. Yeah. Uh, come on, Steve. Uh, I, I would like a more specific answer. Geez, I, I went to a site on the four basic components of soil. And, yeah, and yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's part of that, Steve. Okay. Come on. Yeah, it, it's it's a very general term, but yeah, okay, okay. I got mineral matter. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I didn't want to step on a whole bunch of other answers. And uh, no, yeah, actually, that, you just stepped on a whole category. Yeah, but that's well, okay. It is okay, it is category more than worse. more than something yeah. specific. Yeah, <laughs> even worse by being too specific. Iron. Iron. All right. 
Steve? Sure. Steve, he's like the orthodox rabbi of yeah, organics got, here and yeah. soil. All right, we need to, uh, Roy, hold on. I'm going to put you on hold. When Brooks gets done seething, he'll get your name and address and uh, send you the prize that we're uh, sending everybody on today's Garden Grappler, which is from Steve Zion and Living Resources Company called Know Your Soil Texture. Now we'll take your blessed little break, Brooks, and come back with the rest of your answers on today's Garden Grappler on Get Growing on KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, we're in the midst of the Garden Grappler. We have one open line at 576-1578 or 866-331-8255 for you to win a prize if you can name a component of soil. Michael and Folsom said fungal mycorrhizae. Roy and Citrus Heights said iron, which is a mineral, which can be found in soils. We weren't that specific when we set this thing up and said name a soil component. But yeah, that would be fine. So who's next on the old uh, Garden Grappler hit parade here? It would be Amar and Folsom. Is it is it pronounced Amar? Yes, oh, Amar, correct. I got that right. All right. Yes. So, so Amar, go ahead and uh, give us a soil component. Air. Very good. Yeah, a lot of people forget about air. Yeah, that's that's most people don't consider that in a, a in a component of air, and that's one of the two most important components. And what is air? Air is, is a combination of gases. Yes. It's a gas molecule. Yes. Yeah. It, it's well, it's a whole bunch of molecules. Yeah. Oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, carbon. Yeah. And I figured it's almost uh, impossible to go wrong with air and, and anything, <laughs> you know, living. Yeah, for, yeah, for it, the most part. I mean, there are some critters that can live without it, but they're typically bad guys, or what we as humans would consider bad guys. Yep, yeah, and that's why when we talk about uh, overly saturated soils, what is removed from overly saturated soil, and the reason the plant suffers, it's a lack of air. Yep. So, yeah, good answer there, Amar. So we'll be sending you... Uh, from Living Resources Company, their excellent handout on Know Your Soil Texture. So that'll be coming your way. Thank you so much. Love your show. Being a long-time listener. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Next up, it is Robert in Lincoln. Hi, Robert. Hi, Fred. So, Robert, what soil component are you a big fan of? Uh, organic matter. Great. O- O-M. Oh, that's how I refer to it all the time. Organic OM. matter. Organic matter. That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. That's the food for the other components. What is in organic <laughs> matter? What is in, we can't. There's more questions to be. Oh, okay. So if you said we, that, that we, would also. We, that, I would. I think we have to end that conversation for the moment. Now okay. So, we so at the up. end of the Garden Grappler, we, we will discuss organic, organic matter. matter. Yeah. Om. Yeah. Good answer, Robert. I'll be sending you from uh, Living Resources Company. There, know your soil texture handout and something from the Farmer Fred Library and, too. And, and I, I will say that you know one of the pro- one of the issues with organic matter is a good soil will have 5 to 10% organic matter. Most of our soils in the valley and the foothills have about 1% organic matter. So we need to be adding more organic matter. All right. We will discuss that in the final half hour of this program. Robert, thanks for your participation. I appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we come to Caller 5 in Sacramento. It's Maryland. So, Maryland, we've heard about air, organic matter, iron, fungal mycorrhizae. What soil component would you like to add to this list? Okay, I'm going to go with phosphorus. Phosphorus, another nutrient. 
Yeah. And it, it certainly can be found in soil. Exactly. It's one of the, your your macronutrients. Primary nutrient. Yes. Yeah. It's it, it modern research uh, that was taking place in the 1840s. Uh, very recent research. Yes. Um, analyzed plant ash, and they burned up plants, and they found out that that in all of the plants there were three nutrients that they found huge amounts of in all of them, and one of them was phosphorus, and so it is called a macro or primary nutrient. We can mention the other two <laughs> since the garden grappler is that now would over. be nitrogen and potassium or right. potash. Up, down, and all around. Yep. As and uh, sulfur. No, that's not. that's a micronutrient. Yep, but well, okay. but, it, but it does it, it's in the soil. That's for yep. sure. Hey, Marilyn, because you're the caller, fifth caller, we have for you. I'm going to be sending you the Sacramento County Master Gardener Gardening Guide and Calendar for 2018. Yay! Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you want that, or instead, do you want a gift certificate from Green Acres Nursery and Supply? Ooh, that's um, a hard choice. Well, I, I think I actually already have a calendar, so I will take the gift certificate. All right. All right. I'll be, I forgot I had that. Yes, I do have one more left. So I'll be sending you the, the last one, the Green Acres Nursery and Supply Gift Certificate. So, Amazing. That's awesome. All right. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. Thank you, Fred. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. I have to make a note of that. All right. Good job. We have to take a break. When we come back, let's discuss organic matter, shall sure. we? Yep. All right. One, and we'll... Delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Before we find out what organic matter really is from Sacramento's organic person, the Prince of Pedagogy. Pedology. Pedology and pedagogy. Steve Zion, uh, before, let's go to the phones and talk with uh, Karen up in Nevada City. Karen, thanks for giving us a call. Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could explain the difference between yams and sweet potatoes, because a man was sent to the grocery store to get sweet potatoes, and he came back with the white one, and his wife was real upset. So we can't have this kind of stuff happening. Not on Thanksgiving or any holiday feast, for that matter. There are a lot of grocery stores that have it wrong. And uh, my doctor had said that sweet potatoes, uh, the darker the color, the more nutrition in there. And they're a very good food for you as long as you don't put any sugar on them. Oh, yeah, or so, butter. Could yeah. you explain uh, to people about that? Do, can you do that? I can uh, give you the, all the botanicals behind that. A sweet potato is basically related to field bindweed. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> a, a sweet potato is from the Convolvulsiae family, and it's a native of Central and South America. And they do produce a good crop in our area. You, you can grow them here. As a matter of fact, in a few weeks, we're going to have an interview with uh, Gail Potauer, Sacramento County Master Gardener, about how to grow sweet potatoes in your backyard. Now, yams, on the other hand, they're not even distantly related to sweet potatoes. Uh, they originated in West Africa. If you grow them in the United States, it's usually an exotic greenhouse specimen. And it's... Uh, the word yam comes from an African word, niami. So it's in the Dioscoria family of perennial herbaceous vines, and they can grow to over three feet long, and they weigh 30 to 40 pounds. So I don't think uh, you brought back from the grocery store any 30 or 40-pound uh, uh, sweet potato, so to speak. Oh. Now, the problem 
comes again with um, uh, government interference <laughs> because <laughs> be, because they decided the USDA uh, in their wisdom in their wisdom and first of all it started off as as many things do as a marketing gimmick. Uh, the term yam was first used in Louisiana in the mid-20th century as a way to market local sweet potatoes as being different from the types grown in the northeastern states, much like the term tangerine was used to sell mandarins back in the early 20th century uh, as a marketing term uh, of a mandarin that originated in Tangiers, Morocco. And the yam, again, basically is... Uh, as if it's sold at a supermarket in the United States, it really is a sweet potato. And in fact, the USDA requires that if you use yams in your advertising, you also have to mention sweet potatoes. Now, I don't know if they comply with that or not, but uh, I'll let the government fight that out. Um, so when you go to the grocery store, they're all the same. Uh, basically, they, they are varieties. they are sweet potatoes, and the best varieties to grow here include Covington, Diane, Japanese, O. Henry, and Bonita. Yes, can I ask you? I uh, bought for the first time a purple sweet potato that was purple on the outside, real dark, and purple on the inside, and absolutely delicious. Yeah. Can I grow that here? Yes, yes, you can. Now the trick, though, is finding. Uh, the sweet potato slips to grow. Now, if you go to a supermarket and they're selling the purple ones organically, in other words, they haven't been treated with an anti-sprouting agent, you could grow those from slips. Yes, that is all tremendously sweet with nothing on it. But they they really probably need to be in the organic section of the store. Right. Okay, I'll see if I can get that. And I do have a friend from Asia, and she said she grew up where... Uh, they had no sugar, and they always took their sweet potatoes and boiled them slowly for days until they got this syrup, and they put that in everything that we put sugar in. Oh, okay. All right. So, and they, so um, they I'm thinking of trying that to eliminate sugar. <laughs> well, they, whatever keeps you away from the yeah. sugar bowl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not... <laughs> Yeah, that's not the best thing in the world. It's the white sugar. Now, uh, having said all that, uh, the best time to plant those slips would be in April or May. Oh, okay. Thank you right. very much. It's a warm weather uh, crop. Yep. Thanks, Karen. All right. All right. Bye-bye. So there. All right. We learned something about sweet potatoes. So there's, there is a difference between sweet potatoes and yams, but not as far as the United States grocery stores. Because of <laughs> yes. USDA and all their wisdom. Because uh, how many times do you see at that... Here during Mandarin season, you yep. see a sign that says tangerines. Yep. And the only the only Mandarin variety that truly can be called a tangerine is usually a variant of the Clementine. If it's a Clementine variant, that, for marketing purposes, could be called a tangerine. All tangerines are mandarins. Not all mandarins are tangerines. And tangerines, there is no botanical crop called tangerine. Yeah. It's like Kleenex. They're all facial tissues <laughs> or Band-Aids. Yeah. What, what's the generic name for Band-Aid? Bandage. Bandage. That's good. I like that. As opposed to a strip, a health strip or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up for us. All right. 
<laughs> What's in organic matter? That's what we all want to know. Organic matter, good for the soil. You said it, uh, the ideal soil should have 5% organic matter. Typically, we only have 1%. Yeah, so and, 5%. Yeah, and the, and the vast majority of the organic matter um, is biology, primarily dead biology. Uh, that can be roots. That's the name of my band in high school, by the way. What, dead biology. Dead biology. Yeah. <laughs> and um, primarily microscopic organisms, and the they eat the roots and the leaves and all of the organic matter. That's the 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 plant material. The dead plant material is food for the soil biology. And then that soil biology eats it, and then they poop, and that that may, that turns into humus, and that's what you know that microscopic poop is really what the plants eat. So if somebody asks me what is humus, I, all I have to say is microscopic poop. Yeah, and de- okay. and dead and dead micro- microbes. Actually, there's probably more. Dead microbes than anything else. Well, especially since you said there's a gazillion microbes in in a handful yes. of soil. Yes, I heard that you say that earlier. Yes, that's a, v- a and very you science, counted. Very, si- I, I have counted them. Yeah. Yes, and and a gazillion. It, it, yeah, okay. one, one. I counted them one at a time, <laughs> and I got to a gazillion. So organic three matter, years of research. This is a a big endorsement for no till. Yes, when it comes to uh, planting crops instead of. Uh, Getting out the rototiller or your uh, disker, or I, I guess you could you you could use a disker, couldn't you? In no-till, no, 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 no diskers. Uh, but I mean, you a, a disk is less disruptive, yeah, than your typical moldboard plower that that turns the soil over. But and, the whole idea behind no-till is to leave that stubble behind, be right. whatever crop you're growing, in right. order to feed the soil, improving water percolation yep. into the soil. And feeding the soil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By putting by putting the organic matter, you know, leaving the residue on the surface of the soil, one, the roots are still there, and they're going to decompose and add organic matter, and the microbes will use that as a food source. The the litter on the surface of the soil, the stubble, will prevent uh, erosion, and will warm the soil, and then you just basically the no-till farmers, they're basically Use it using a drill that mm-hmm. drills into the soil and plants the seed. So there's, it's minimal disruption of the soil. Because when you disrupt the soil, you're exposing the organic matter. A lot of that will go off as gases, and, and you will you reduce the amount of organic matter by, by tilling. You distort, destroy the soil's structure that we talked about that earlier. I think it was on the other show where good soil structure has lots of different sized pore spaces. And it's important to have a large pore spaces so you have air in your soil because all of the beneficial critters that live in the soil, including our plant roots, need oxygen as much as they need air. And uh, it's all about it's all about the critters in the soil. They they perform numerous benefits. They create soil texture. They aerate the soil. They help our plants uh, survive transplant survive uh, survival. They help uh, in uh, drought tolerance. Uh, they help with the movement of, of biology, of nutrients, of water through the soil. Um, they prevent um, nutrients from running off, polluting our surface waters. They prevent the nutrients from leaching through the soil, contaminating our groundwater. 
it just and um oh wait a it, minute wait a minute i'm getting a telepathic message from my dead mother what <laughs> what is it mom oh she's saying what does that have to do with the price of tea of china and she always <laughs> she would always say that when you got off topic and so what she wants to know is i'm a home gardener how does no-till apply to me so when we come back from this break talk about applying no-till to the home garden okay and what you can do or not do in that regard to improve your soil okay all right, so we'll do that. Thanks, Mom. No, don't call me Freddie Joe. Uh, more get growing on the way here on Talk 650 KSTE. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Steve Zion, Living Resources Company. And uh, as I said before the break, we're going to talk to Steve after the break about something that I forgot what I said. Organic matter. Organic matter. Yeah. And, you... and, and why people should oh, no-till. do no-till yeah, in the garden. Yeah, yeah. Let's get my mother out of my head <laughs> uh, and answer that question. For the home gardener, we talked about the benefits of no-till for the commercial farmer as far as by leaving the the residue, the plant stubble in the ground, you're improving the soil as that stubble breaks down. You're improving uh, the water percolation through the soil. You're feeding the soil. You're doing yep. a whole world of good. Yep. For the backyard gardener, though, is that practical? Oh, sure. And what do you leave? I, whatever is there. You, I mean, you can cut off the main part of the plant, but leave, you know, leave the, the, the stem and the roots um, the exception might be is if you're going to be planting immediately. Um, and then, you know, rather than tilling it, I would say just, you know, basically if you can cut, cut the plant off at the ground or pull it up. Cause it, when you pull it up, you're still disrupting the soil and it's kind of tillage, you know, in a way that is tillage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You're, and, <laughs> and, the, and one, one, I think the thing that, that most people will, key in on and why they don't want to till the soil is that the 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 makeup of the soil in in particular between two beneficial microscopic organisms fungi and bacteria uh, depending upon who is living there in larger numbers determines what kinds of plants will grow there more successfully and that's the the when you're trying to grow trees and bushes you want a fungal-dominated soil. And so that's why you have all the mushrooms and stuff in the Pacific Northwest in that fungal-dominated soil. And um, in uh, when you till the soil, bacteria are little one-celled microscopic little critters. And you can till the soil, and they will survive. And so you till the soil, lots of bacteria. The fungi are thread-like critters that get sliced up by the tiller. Hyphae. And they, so your the amount of fungi will decline. And so you are moving from the climax type plants, the woody plants being favored to the first invaders of a destroyed soil. And those plants are weeds. And so I basically tell people, if you want weeds in the garden, till your soil because you will be creating a biological system that favors weed development. Can I take this back to the home garden situation for a second? That is for the home garden. Well, well I know, but 
I'm worried about soil-borne pathogens that you've introduced through some plant that had a disease. And I'm thinking in terms of tomato plants, in terms of blight. Okay. If you have a suffering tomato plant especially, I think it would behoove you to remove the entire plant and any debris in yeah. order to prevent the spread of that disease. When, when you ha- There are certain instances where you need to till, if you will. And that would be to remove diseased plant material. And when yes. we're talking tilling here, we're just talking about digging up the plant. Yeah, or just put, you know, if you can, just pull it out. Yeah. When the soil, when the and and anytime you work that soil, the soil should be moist, not dry, and not wet. Mm-hmm. And with any sort of plant debris that may have had insect or disease issues, it'd probably be best to remove that, wouldn't it? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. From the area. And not and not put it in your compost pile. Right. We have left out one leg of this triad of successful, healthy soil. We've talked about the benefits of no-till. Mm-hmm. All right. We, we've talked about the benefits of, uh, what was the other one? We didn't, the one we left out. I don't out, know where you're going. Yeah, I know. I Brain went kablooey. The leg we left out, the benefits of cover cropping. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we need to stress that, especially for the home gardener. If you don't leave your soil bare, no, it, put something on it. It could be mulch, or better yet, better yet, a growing crop, a, a cover crop yeah. that is called a nitrogen fixing crop. It actually okay. grabs nitrogen from the air. Uh, the, well, there's 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 two kinds of of cover crops, and 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 the best cover crops are a combination of both. One is a plant that produces lots of organic matter. And, and in many cases, that's organic matter in the root system. It has a really extensive root system. Sometimes if you've got clay and you've got hard pan, some of these cover crops are very deep-rooted and are capable of breaking up hard pan. Then there are other cover crops often referred to as green manures that are what are called legumes, and they take nitrogen out of the air, out of those large pore spaces that we talked about before, and, and with the help of a certain type of nitrifying bacteria, uh, with the bacteria work in conjunction with the root system of the plants, and they, ex- they extract that nitrogen out of the air in the soil and put it into the nodules of the plants, which then is available to that plant. And then if you leave those roots in the soil, it will decompose and become available to subsequent plants, which is the whole idea of a cover crop or green manure. You leave that material there for future crops. What I left out, it wasn't cover cropping. It just occurred to me in my addled brain here. Crop rotation. Mm. We didn't didn't talk about that. And that is an important part of soil conservation. um, I don't think that's quite so much a, a, a part of soil conservation as it is pest management. I think it's more important for pest management um, because a lot of times uh, by crop rotation, uh, lots of pests are specific to a certain type of crop. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they they often winter over or summer over if it's a winter crop um, and will be there if you put that same crop in the same spot. Um, but also, doesn't the same crop in the same spot year after year also depleted of certain nutrients that another plant may not have yeah, that issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, but that's again from a nutri. It's not so much. For, for the, I mean, the soil will be fine, but your plants. You know, if you keep growing the same kind of plant, and you're not 
adding more of those nutrients or providing enough organic matter that the soil biology can get those nutrients together. Um, you could be mine, basically mining the soil. Another reason why you want to increase organic matter, and I think this is something that home gardeners can, can relate to, you improve the amount of organic matter in your soil by 1%, and no-till will help that. That will make you mean that your soil will have 3.7% more available water. Well, what does that mean? Three or 620 gallons more water per mm -hmm. year yeah. per 1,000 square feet. That's right. That's a lot of water. That's right. More water available for your plant in yep. a drought year. Yes. Yeah. And this, and this is exactly why during the drought, organic farmers, because they've been adding organic matter to the soil and have much more organic matter in their soil, weren't, and especially crops that normally were, were able to get by without irrigation or minimal irrigation, the conventional farmers lost you know, huge amounts of their yields, and that was not the case with the organic farmers. Because the increase, you know, it's all in, in organic farming. It's all about increasing in a, the amount of organic matter in your soil and improving soil quality. If I could put a pretty little bow on and wrap this whole thing up, when we talk about uh, Healthy Soils Week here in California, we're talking about continuous minimum mechanical soil disturbance, a permanent organic soil cover, and diversification of crop species grown in sequences or in associations. Something along those lines. Yeah. All right. Steve Zion, Living Resources Company. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you too, Fred. All right. Good job. Again, Living Resources Company on the web at organiclandscape.com. And available via telephone. 916-726-5377. Thank you for participating in the holiday edition of Get Growing. It was fun as always. All Thanks right. for having me. We'll here. see you again. We'll thank you for listening without... Your participation at home in listening to this program via live radio or internet or delayed basis on podcast, without that participation by you, there would be no garden show. So I'm very appreciative of all the support you've given this program over the years. Thank you so much.